0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 41, our look at how clinical trial designs and strategies are evolving, plus from The Vault, a section of the 2020 episode that asked what we could learn from past drug trial failures and set the stage for researchers to learn the lessons we talk about in this week's episode. This conversation starts with Jorn Schottenberg's comment that NITs are not always part of specific inclusion or exclusion criteria, but among the tools that more experienced researchers use to improve screening fail rates and match patients to the trials for drugs most likely to help them. Stephen Harrison notes that metabolic risk factors are also among the elements he uses to match patients to trials. The conversation shifts focus to factors that aid recruitment. Stephen Harrison contrasts the energy recruiters show when recruiting two trials for the same drug, one in obesity and another in NASH. The obesity trial has a 25% screen fail rate, while the NASH trial has an 80% rate. Needless to say, the energy around recruiting the obesity trial is far higher. Stephen goes on to discuss how earlier errors in trial design mostly around pathology and biopsy reads, have cost some good drugs their chances for approval. The errors reflect the challenges caused by having a single pathology reader and has led to all trials incorporating consensus reads for multiple pathologists going forward. As the conversation ends, Louise Campbell and Stephen discuss issues around setting inclusion thresholds and how they might vary from trial to trial. Stephen Harrison notes in today's episode that we have data from six sets of promising trials reporting over the next six to eight months. If they produce positive outcomes, this will result in part from the quality of medications and in part from the lessons investigators and sponsors have learned about improving trial designs as we discuss here and as compared to the vault episode we're presenting so sit back listen enjoy it learn when you're done join the dialogue on our linkedin discussion group
1: yarn Schottenberg.
2: The NITs we're using are not always necessarily part of the protocol, defining inclusion or exclusion. It's kind of the state of the art, how an experienced NASH center would evaluate a patient and consider him for enrollment in in a clinical trial. Now, we've seen some studies, in particular phase three, that are pre-selecting patients based on metabolic risk factors, some very clinical aspects, obesity, presence of diabetes, not so heavily coined towards NITs. And that, of course, reflecting that it's not always available everywhere, in particular, if you want to enroll a large amount of patients and in a relatively short time, you might not be able to go to those very specialized centers. On the other hand, I think it helps tremendously to refine it. And for a sponsor, I think even if you do not require a certain NIT cutoff, it's important to capture those because the investigators, in my experience, are using them to direct the patient towards the trial and you're going to have a certain pre-selection. If it's in your protocol or not, it's going to happen.
1: Stephen Harrison. That's a good point, for sure. These NITs are not necessarily always built into the inclusion and exclusion criteria for a study. They're both. Sometimes there are specific metabolic risk factors plus NITs. Sometimes there are just metabolic risk factors. But the whole idea behind this is we clearly have learned that we don't just want to take any patient with fatty liver and screen them for a trial. We know that if we enrich them for diabetes, obesity, hypertension, even evidence of early renal dysfunction, that we're very likely to have an enriched population that would qualify on liver biopsy. And that's a good thing, right? We don't want to do unnecessary liver biopsies. And so if we can continue to refine the right patient to bring forward for a study, that does several things. It obviously keeps the site engaged. They don't get what we call study fatigue, where they have so many screen fails, they've been burned out. The coordinating team stays motivated. Patients are more apt to be engaged. And I've seen that. For instance, we have an ongoing obesity trial. It's not a NASH trial. It's an obesity trial with the same drug we're using in one of our NASH trials. The screen fail rate's only 25%, as opposed to a NASH trial that has screen fail rates of 80%. And you can see that the energy around enrolling that obesity trial is so much higher and the NASH trial, where we're struggling to find the right patients to cross the finish line. So of all the things that we have honed in on, on this podcast and in real life and at liver meetings, such as EASL and AASLD, probably the most important one, in my opinion, is finding ways to mitigate that screen fail rate and finding the right patients to qualify. And I'll just say it now because I think it's apropos for this part in the discussion, is where we've learned this challenging existed dates back a couple of years, but clearly we know that there's heterogeneity in liver biopsy, there's sampling variability, there's interpretation variability amongst pathologists, and we lost a couple drugs, whether it's the MSDC-0602K drug, that's the one that stands out, or Celadelpar, which is another one that comes to mind. Those drugs were lost in part because they were read by a single pathologist, and unfortunately, the methodology brought forth and both of those contributed to the demise of those drugs in the setting of NASH. For MSDC 0602K, it was rereading the baseline biopsy to try to eliminate temporal bias. And in so doing, a quarter of the patients on reread by the same pathologist were found to not have NASH at baseline. When earlier, the same pathologist said there was NASH at baseline. So when you imputed the statistics from that point, the drug did not have statistical significance for NASH. NASH resolution, despite the fact that there was a dose-response relationship. When you actually went back and looked at it the old way, there was statistical significance. That drug would be in phase three today. With celadelpar, which is a very similar situation, single pathologist read of the baseline. At the time that the end of treatment biopsies were brought forth to read, a second pathologist was brought in to help. That second pathologist found some issues in the follow-up liver biopsy that were concerning in the pathologist's mind for drug-induced liver injury that prompted a halt to the trial and a big investigation where all the baseline biopsies were reread. And it turns out that those same lesions were there already on the pre-read as on the end of treatment biopsy. And had that been adjudicated at the beginning, that drug would have continued on and very likely would be in phase three for NASH now. Well, just to continue the thought and fast forward, we've learned that potentially it's better if more than one set of eyes looks at a biopsy. And so we've begun down the road of consensus read. And we're not fully vetted yet on what the best way to do this is. There are some studies where you have two pathologists, they both read independently. If they agree, great. If they don't, they come together and adjudicate the biopsy. Seed collectively and get what we call a consensus read. There are others that have three pathologists. Each of them read independently where two agree. Where none agree, they get together on a phone call. And then you have an additional situation where AI digital pathology is being done and being provided to the pathologist as a, what we call a companion diagnostic. So they can look at the, the computer-generated report as they adjudicate their ordinal reading on the liver pathology tissue. And and that's kind of where we are today is some variants of that last little bit. Two pathologists adjudicating consensus, three pathologists adjudicating consensus, or a situation where in either of those scenarios, there's AI digital path being brought to the table as well. What we're not, and I want to make sure this is clear, where we are not yet is fully AI digital path read. In other words, a computer replacing a pathologist. That has not happened and and probably won't happen. I think what, where we're headed in that is we'll, we'll, we'll transition to non-invasive tests, but use AI digital pathology to help us gain a better idea of ground truth as we transition to a non-invasive testing strategy. But I think that's another area where we've come significantly and made huge strides, maybe in the past year
0: even, I I think. I wrote down three notes, but Louise, you have any questions you want to share before I uh, dive into those?
3: Louise Campbell. No, I think everything that the guys have been saying is absolutely spot on. From a different side, Stephen hit the nail on the head when he talked about sites getting disheartened when you don't get people into studies. Stephen runs a big site, but we were on sites and I know other people at sites where you only have five slots. If you don't recruit to these slots and it it's very difficult. The first people that the patient engages with are nursing staff. If they're discouraged by the way the trial is running or the lack of ability to recruit, then that message gets across because it's very difficult to try and encourage somebody into studies. We need to keep that interest up and that vigour, I suppose, for the patient recruitment and it's just absolutely vital. I listened to your presentation at ILC, Stephen, where you looked at raising the threshold for FibroScan, for example. I think it was 12.9 with a higher cutoff for cap as well in that context that by the time you remove and you drop the AST down, then you will also see the fibrosis drop. So, I was interested in that, and I think that's what I would certainly see traditionally in patients, the higher the Fibra scan, by the time you account for the AST as it normalizes, then you see a more true picture. On biopsy, That was actually quite important because I think the cutoffs now are still, as you both described, 8 to 8.5, which suggests you might get a high screen failure. But I thought that was an important session that you did at ILC that explained that.
1: You know, I don't think we have a cookie cutter approach to this. I think each clinical trial is different. It has its own ecosystem, if you will, of what works or what doesn't work. It's contingent on the pathologist that's reading the slide. It's contingent on the criteria that you have to meet to enroll the patient. But I think on a very standard phase 2B or 3 trial where you're looking for NASH patients with an NAS of 4 or more and the standard F2 to F3 fibrosis, we are able to get a little closer to where we need to be using our non-invasives. You know, I, I see a role potentially for NIS-4 here as well. That's kind of designed to find the F2-3 patient with an NAS of 4. or more. I see a role for Mephib, which is Rohit Lumba's criteria. I see a role for MAST here, which Maz and Nuruddin brought forward. Those obviously, those last two involve MRE. So if you're not getting MRE as a clinical tool or Uh, MRI PDFF, then you're not going to be able to use methib and mast in your pre-screen strategy. But NIS-4 is a blood test that could be sent off. ELF is another one that one could look at to help stratify patients. Of course, ELF doesn't tell us anything about NASH. It just tells us about fibrosis. But uh, you don't have to just use FAST like I commented on. There are others out there that could be done, and, and we could develop a strategy in real time to help guide the cutoffs. For instance, if you're using NIS4 and we're a third of the way through the trial, and we can analyze screen fail data on biopsy versus screened in data. We can come back and analyze what the optimal cutoff is for NIS4 to meet eligibility for this particular trial using these particular pathologists. That could be done in any non invasive, not just FAST, not just NIS4, but method MAST, anything where we are able to obtain clinical data to be used as a pre screen strategy for enrollment in a clinical trial. So So I do think the more we can do that, the better off we'll be.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. I'll be off next week, but Louise Campbell will lead Jorn Schottenberg and a panel of health professionals and patient advocates discussing the nurse's role in clinical care pathways. I can't wait to listen, and you shouldn't either. I'll be back the week after that for episode 43, which will look at the evolution of combination therapies and their place in our future. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.